Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get to the show. Hello, and welcome to Maximizing Outcomes with Jim McGovern. Jim, what's going on? Well, Eric, we got a great guest lined up for today and a really important topic that is something that we cover in one-on-one meetings with our clients. But you know, this is one of those topics where people always say afterwards, hey, any articles on this that you can send me or, mm-hmm. or just something I can I can use to just get a second crack at this because it's a it's a very important topic. So we thought we'd just record a podcast episode. That way people can play it again and again. So well, here's the thing is that you're you even said it right before we hit the record button, you're gonna take a pretty complex situation and break it down in easier terms for for myself and the audience. And that's what I think you do pretty much on every podcast. You take some pretty complex stuff make it pretty simple. And then it really gets us to ask questions. Um, And that's what I'm looking forward to. All right. So let's dive in here. Today's topic is going to be dynasty trusts. And we're really going to be talking about why this should be the centerpiece of the family estate plan. So we're going to talk about some of the traditional approaches to estate planning and and where they fall short, uh, where assets may be unnecessarily exposed to creditors, divorcing spouses, transfer taxes, and a whole host of other issues that we're going to get into. So before I introduce our guests, I want everyone to think of their estate plan the way they think of the safety features in their car. Our cars are engineered to keep everybody in the car safe under as many conditions as possible because we just don't know what we're going to encounter on the road. We don't know who we're going to encounter on the road. So we would never buy a car that has a bunch of safety features that suddenly disappear as you hit certain mileages. And yet many people have wills and trusts with safety features that expire when the beneficiaries hit certain ages. So we would never drive a car with incomplete safety features. Maybe it only has airbags, but there's no seatbelts, or it just protects the people in the front of the car, but does nothing to keep the people in the back of the car safe. Like we would never own or drive in a car that, that functions that way. So we wanna make sure that our protection and our estate plan is complete. And we wanna make sure that it's engineered with extreme conditions in mind. And we have the full suite of the most advanced safety features available because we never know if our beneficiaries or ourselves, if we're going to need these things. So with that, I want to welcome attorney Jerry Wegley from Knox Law to the show. Jerry, welcome to Maximizing Outcomes. Thank you, Jim. Glad to be here. This is a great topic, so I'm I'm excited to dive in. Uh, But before we do, can you just tell us a little bit about your practice, uh, the areas that you specialize in, how long you've been practicing law? Certainly. I specialize in the estate and asset protection area, which is pretty broad. It includes uh, the traditional estate planning, estate administration, trust creation, trust administration. It also includes a subset um, called elder law or nursing home planning, long-term care planning. And I, I still have some business clients. A lot of my estate planning clients own businesses. And so I, I had a, a fairly sizable practice uh, that would be just in the the, uh, the business and corporate world, uh, but I've transitioned primarily into the estate and asset protection world. My background prior to becoming an attorney 23 years ago was uh, I was a CPA at Ernst & Young and practiced there for six years and then uh, have been through counseling and a lot of therapy. I've, I've gone <laughs> on to, to become an attorney. So I always 
tell people you can't tell a joke without making fun of me. <laughs> Definitely the butt of many jokes, but uh, I'm sure you have some good comebacks as well. So let's talk about, I mean, you've probably seen it all. I mean, that, that's quite the resume and quite the experience, but you know, let's, let's just start off by talking about some of the, the common thinking around estate planning, like what people think they're trying to accomplish versus what they're, what, what's really available to them. Sure. And a lot of times people don't know what they need to do because they come in and they say, I need a will. And, and I, you know, always want to hear what they're, uh, what's on their mind, what they're trying to achieve and try to frame their objectives and concerns. And what I typically sort of segue into is, is asking them, do you, do you need a will or do you need an estate plan? Cause an estate plan is more comprehensive and it addresses things that are very uh, important while they're alive, but also things that will happen after their death and either immediately or a long time in the future. So it's really just getting them to think about things that they may not have been uh, thinking about or directed in the wrong path, I guess to say. I think when it comes to the topic of trust, and we're going to talk all kinds of details about dynasty trust here today, but I, I think that people have a bit of a misperception about what trusts are, what they can do, what problems they address. So can you just spend a, a moment, you know, when someone comes in to say, hey, I, I think I need a trust, what, where are they usually coming from when they say that? Sure. Um, when they lead with that, hey, I need a trust, oftentimes somebody said something to them, and it's, I, I would say typically it's to avoid probate, or to protect assets from long-term care costs. And you get a lot of legal advice standing in the checkout line at the grocery store or at cocktail parties. And, you know, some people get all worked up thinking, hey, I need a trust, I need a trust. But they don't know what that is. And they don't know why. Uh, they were just told that they needed one. And so, you know, our job uh, as a counselor and attorney is to really understand what's driving their concerns, because their estate plan is going to be customized to, to meet those concerns. Um, but then also to educate them as to what the trusts can and can't do so that the expectations aren't overblown, or, or they fully utilize the trust for their benefit. What I tell them is that a trust is really just an agreement between two people for the benefit of a third. And it's possible to be all three of those people. Or you could have one person that creates the trust, the other one that is the trustee that administers it, and another party that's the beneficiary, depending on what, what situations they're in and what they're trying to achieve. Because a lot of people come in and they just feel that a trust is too complex for them. There's no control. They don't want to have to deal with a bank. They'll never get money out or their kids will never get money out. And once they understand that they can create the trust the way they want to create the trust to achieve the objectives they want to achieve, and they don't even have to deal with a bank or they could deal with a bank if they want, whatever, um, they start realizing it's not what they thought it was. And, and so then we move on from there. Yeah, I think a lot of the misperception around trust is that people think it's like this lockbox that can never get money out of, or it's, it's a big hassle, or they think that trusts are really designed just to dodge taxes. You know, the benefits are, are much, much more than that. And, and a lot of the drawbacks are not what people think they are. So can you just spend a little bit of time talking about the differences between owning assets outright, where it's in your own hands, it's in your own name, there's no rules around it, versus what you can do when money is inside of a well-designed trust? Yep, certainly. And not to fault the, the client, trusts that were written 30, 40 years or even longer ago were pretty rigid. 
and they did have uh, financial institutions that would administer them. And nothing against financial institutions. They do a great job. They're very professional. They, they like, cross all the T's, dot all the I's. But the trustee is given a lot of discretion. And so when a financial institution is making discretionary decisions, they're looking out for the beneficiary's best interest, but they're also looking out for their best interest too. Um, and I, I got a lot of friends that are in that world and I don't mean to insult any of them, but um, it, it is designed that for that reason is to make sure that uh, both the trustee and the beneficiary are protected. But over the last 20 years, trusts have evolved. The whole industry or market of trusts have evolved to become a lot more flexible um, and a lot and to meet a lot more concerns and objectives. And so that's typically where we start is to really understand what is it they're concerned about, what are their objectives, and then talk to them about is it possible, is it is, you know, can we achieve all of those things? And op oftentimes the trust is the best, if not the only way to do so. And the, the where we start, okay, is with a dynasty trust, okay? And so once they understand what a trust is, is just an agreement between two people, then we talk about a dynasty trust. And the dynasty trust is just what it sounds like. A dynasty is designed to go on forever. And so trusts can be designed to go on forever. Most states allow that. There are certain states that allow that only goes on for 100 years or 360 years or something like that. But for the most part, they go on for a long, long time. And if you're going to create a trust that goes on for a long time, you really want it to be flexible because situations and circumstances are going to change. Beneficiaries are going to change. And through this evolution of the, of the trust administration world, attorneys, trustees, financial institutions have gotten more comfortable with the ability to modify trusts as things progress. And so what you're seeing are trusts that unfortunately are 50, 60 pages long, but they address many situations that don't exist today. And they also include provisions that allow people to modify the trust to address a situation that comes up in the future that somebody didn't um, think of. And so then we get back to what are the what are the client's concerns? And so I hear a lot, in fact, more often than not, you talk to the the parents. And they all love their kids and, they, and they, they're all great kids for the most part. But you really start talking and getting into uh, their world and they start to open up more. And you find out that one of their kids isn't so good with money. He's already been bankrupt once. Another child, they're not too happy about the in-law, so the new spouse. And then you've got another one that may have some uh, medical disabilities or uh, things like that. And so you start realizing, well, okay, so they're all good kids. And you trust them with the money. Um, and, the, you know, so they originally came in and said, we just want all of the assets to go to our kids when we pass away. But the concerns are like, maybe that money isn't going to be used to what we thought it was going to be used for. So somebody else is going to step in and and take it. So maybe somebody uh, through financial decisions is going to lose their inheritance through bankruptcy. Maybe one of the kids is going to lose half their money through a divorce. Uh, and then the other one is just going to have to pay for their medical expenses um, as opposed to receiving government benefits. You start realizing that these people could really use a trust uh, to protect their assets. And so, so we start talking about, well, okay, when will these concerns end? And the answer 
is really never. I was okay? say, it could be never. <laughs> exactly right. So and, it, and maybe things never happen, right? So maybe nobody gets somebody doesn't get divorced, somebody doesn't file bankruptcy, but you just don't know. So in it that and it's too late to put assets in trust when those things happen. Yet they have to start out in trust, and so kids should understand that the better way to receive inheritance or assets from their parents is in the form of a trust. The bigger question, and we ask the client is, is if, if they're comfortable that their child receives that asset outright, why don't you put it in trust for them, but you just let them be the trustee? That gives them the control over the assets so they can invest, they can sell, they can do whatever they want with the asset. They're going to buy a house with the asset, actually, and or they could make distributions to themselves if they wanted to take assets out of the trust. And what what the trust does is it keeps everybody else out. And what I often say to the client, it's like giving the the kids the keys to the jailhouse because they can come and go as much as they want, but they can keep everybody else out. And once they get that realization of okay, then we're giving the child almost outright ownership because we trust them. We think they're going to make good decisions, but they're, nothing's going to be lost in the divorce. Nothing will, will be lost in the event of a, a bankruptcy or a car accident or a malpractice suit. You start, They start realizing, okay, this trust has some benefits. And then we start talking about the additional features of, well, what if we give them more ownership looking rights and we allow them to give assets away? Okay. Because if they would have inherited money, they could make contributions to their church uh, gifts to friends or other uh, charities, either during their life or upon their death. And so they get this, what's called a power of appointment. So they can start directing assets to whomever or whatever institution they want. So it's really starting to look like they own these assets outright, but it's wrapped in a trust. And, and, and again, the trust gives that protection. Um, and so, you know, so that that's, we start getting people to, to realize like, wow, this, this is a really a different way to own the asset, but it is a far superior way because it addresses all the concerns we have today, but it sounds like it's going to address the concerns we may have tomorrow or even after we pass away. So you mentioned earlier that the the, the whole estate planning industry and, and, and the evolution of trust, things have come a long way the last couple of decades. What you're describing is not that common yet. I'm, ho I'm hoping it becomes much more common, but can you just spend a moment talking about what provisions people typically have in trust when you're reviewing those? So maybe mom and dad already created their estate plan and they have kids and you read that estate plan, what are you seeing in these documents more often than not as the kids get older in life and, and what happens to the assets and the trust? Yes. So a lot of times, so we'll take maybe a profile of family where we've got mom and dad, three kids, and they they come in and they say, we want to everything to go to the surviving spouse. And then we want everything to go to our kids um, in trust because they're one's in college, one just got married, and then the other one's in high school, we'll say. Hold it in trust until they reach ages 25, 30, and 35, and then have that trust terminate and distribute a third, a third, a third, so that at age 35, they receive their full inheritance. And you know that's been a traditional way of creating estate plans. And it, you know, for a lot of the reasons we just discussed, it, it may not be a good way because people may not be out of the woods at age 35 or, or their troubles may just be starting at age 35. And uh, so it's, it doesn't address the full concern. And so what the, uh, again, so, so we start talking to them about what is it, what, what, if you're comfortable that 35 is, is a good age to give them money and an inheritance outright, why don't you just give them the control of the trust and the ability to distribute assets to themselves and whomever at age 35? But 
keep the assets in trust for their lifetime and then their kids' lifetime and, and so on. And they start seeing the benefits of it. And, and so you're right. These trusts are becoming more common, um, but they are still not commonplace. Um, it's, you know, the... When when you graduated law, when people graduate law school, one of the things they're able to do is start doing estate plans, and but they don't do sophisticated estate plans. And and what what you're seeing is the differentiator between the general practitioner or the the estate planner that just wants to keep it simple and administer estates and write will. They're not investing the time to learn the the trust rules and the tax rules that are laden in these documents, but. But more and more are so. So they're becoming more common and becoming common enough where people are able to understand. People that are not in the legal field are able to understand them, and so more willing to use them. And then, so to answer the question that you asked, what do we see with with the assets that are going in here? So a lot of times, while mom and dad are still alive, if they've got the resources and they want to make gifts to kids, they're typically just making gifts of cash. And then the kids, if they're the trustee of their trust, are investing those assets in in their own trust. And we have a, uh, several clients where the the that's the design. The parent is saying, "Well, let's just see how the kids." do if we give them $100,000 today? Are they going to spend it or are they going to invest it? And um, there's a, there's been a couple eye-opening <laughs> uh, situations where, you know, it, literally the, there's three kids, two, two did just what mom and dad were hoping to do. The other one doesn't have a trust fund anymore. So, uh, <laughs> but they realize like, okay, so maybe this one shouldn't be the trustee of their own trust. So let's talk a little bit about, about the mechanics. Cause I, I think you know, a lot of people that I work with, they're thinking, hey, if something happens to me, I want to make sure that everything goes to my spouse. If something happens to my spouse, then I want to get on to the kids. And if the kids don't enjoy the money in their lifetime, then it can go on to the grandkids. Does it make sense just right from the get-go, instead of passing money directly to a spouse, that you put it into the trust first? It does. And that's a great point. Because you know, again, when you go through the things that that mom and dad are concerned about, right? They'll sometimes tell you that about their children, whether they're not, you know, whether they have concerns financially, emotionally, you know, substance abuses, things like that, maybe just in an area of high risk. And but often they don't talk about themselves in, in the sense that what are they, what are the, what is their risk? And so they don't they often don't say, well, we could get divorced, right? <laughs> that could be a separate conversation. But you know, they could get sued just like anybody else, or more likely their biggest exposure to uh, a risk that's going to deplete their their resources is nursing home stays. And so, you know, there there's a couple different plans that you can put in place, uh, even if somebody's in a nursing home. But in the estate plan, it would be best. And what I mean by best is you get the best result is if instead of leaving assets outright to your spouse, you leave them in trust for your spouse um, in, in such a manner that that trust is not considered a resource. And, and so for nursing homes and medical assistance, because that's the government benefit you're invoking, they're looking for resources that can be used to pay for your care in a nursing home. And so just because it's a trust doesn't mean it's not a resource, but a trust with certain provisions in it prevents those assets from being resources when they determine medical assistance to eligibility in long-term care situations. So we counsel our clients to leave assets for spouses, or at least the easy assets, insurance and investment accounts in trust for your spouse. Um, and, and then name your spouse as the trustee. So again, the trustee spouse has access to those resources um, for everything that they need 
but it would be those assets are protected from having to be spent uh, in a long-term care facility. There's also an organizational component to this too, because you know we all like to think that we have a, a tomorrow and a someday to look forward to, but you know life can be cut short without any notice. So by by using the trust at the death of of the first spouse, or even sometimes having the trust own the assets while you're alive, it can make things a lot simpler for the heirs. Um, just because things are already in the trust, that it's not a long, drawn-out probate process. Is that a fair statement? That is a very fair statement. So I had mentioned earlier that a lot of people come in saying, I want to trust to avoid probate. And that um, a lot of times that statement is driven out of fear because they saw uh, Susie Orman on TV or they heard something from um, their uh, their doctor or their, you know, the grocery store clerk or whatever. Um, and probate is different in every state. And you know, we look at probate in Pennsylvania, it's really not that difficult. It's no harder than administering a revocable trust or a living trust. Um, different states are different. You know, New York, Florida, Ohio, or some of the other states we deal with, and you absolutely want to avoid probate for a couple different reasons, but some of those are just the cost and complexity and duration of it. But when you're talking about a trust that's irrevocable, Right. So I, I had mentioned, you know, leave assets to your spouse in trust upon your death. You can also create a trust for your spouse during your lifetime. Okay. Those are commonly referred to as a spousal lifetime access trust or a SLAT, where it's really just setting up the trust during your life that you would have set up at your death. You fund it and your spouse is the beneficiary and trustee. The difference is that it's you know, you know, it's the easy thing to say is it avoids probate, but it really it avoids the administration that you see during a state you know state or revocable trust administration and what drives the that process is making sure that creditors are paid what they're owed and in Pennsylvania creditors have a year to make a claim and so if you have assets in an irrevocable trust you still have the same concern but it's only creditors with regard to that trust and typically that's zero or a very small universe and you can figure out who it is but they don't have it's not uh, like an individual who would have creditors such as uh, lines of credits credit cards or or you know anything that would have accumulated over their their lifetime and so you know the the whole avoiding probate the correct way to say that is avoiding estate administration. And so what irrevocable trusts do is avoid estate administration or um, the, the probating of, of the assets. So to answer your question, I, I, I try to do this early on in my career is like when clients ask a question, they just want a one word answer, Jerry, give it to them, right? The answer to your question- I'm good was, with the details. Yes. <laughs> answer to your question was yes. So- Sometimes when I, when I draw this stuff out on a whiteboard with my clients and explain to them the benefits of, of having a trust, like they, they want to get into the details of how does this actually work? Uh, because it almost sounds too good to be true. You know, it's like, hey, wow, I can I can have my cake and I can eat it too. Can mm -hmm. you talk about some of the the mechanics, like some of the rules of the people that you name in the trust besides the beneficiaries, what their job is and why it's that way and how that sets up mm -hmm. some of this creditor protection and protection against divorcing spouses and and those sorts right. of things. Absolutely. So a common trust that we use is, is created during the client's lifetime, but it's not funded until they pass away. It's designed so that it could be funded. If, if mom and dad want to start making gifts into the trust, uh, that's fine. It works. But it's really set up so that, hey, 
you know, when mom and dad pass away, these trusts will then be funded. And at that point, the trust would get a tax identification number because it now becomes a reporting entity. And then you would open up investment accounts or bank accounts using that tax identification number and the name of the trustee and trust. And as money is put into those trusts, then it is invested however the trustee wants to invest it. And, you know, so one of the the primary rules in this whole thing is that you have to respect the trust agreement. So if the trust agreement says you got to distribute income to the beneficiary, then, and if you don't as trustee, or if it says no distributions and the trustee is making distributions, that's that's where creditors are going to attack it. They're going to say, hey, you're just using this as your alter ego. It's your second checking account. You never respected the trust terms. And they'll ask the judge to not respect the trust terms. So one of the things that has to be done is that you have to respect the trust terms. That said, the trust terms are very broad. The trust terms typically say the trustee can make a distribution to the beneficiary, i.e. themselves, for anything that they need that falls into the categories of health, education, maintenance, and support. And those are four terms or categories that have been used literally for 100 years. And they are they have been interpreted to mean whatever it takes to keep you in the standard of living that you're accustomed to. All right. So literally, if you go on vacation every year, that's your standard of living, the trust could pay for that. If you get a new car every three years, trust could pay for that. So it's really creating that, making sure that you're staying within those boundaries, so that if the trust is ever attacked, you could look to the judge and say, hey, we abided by these terms. Judge, you've got to enforce the, you know, what's called the spendthrift protection clause, meaning creditors can't attach or attack uh, the assets of the trust. So, so we get it funded, and then the trustee would have to abide by the terms. And, and again, sometimes terms can be like, hey, make distributions of five thousand dollars a month or or something like that. But commonly, they are they are those categorical terms, meaning you know, make make distributions for what the beneficiary needs in these categories. And then there's another provision there that says an independent trustee, somebody other than the beneficiary can make a distribution for anything that that trustee feels is appropriate. And that's sort of the key, right? To the jailhouse, meaning we can, this, this child can now bust up this trust if they want to, because they can appoint an independent trustee who could be their college roommate. It could be their CPA or whomever. And they're appointed for a day, and then that trustee distributes all of the assets to the beneficiary, and the trust is done. But but when the client realizes that they have that ability, but they lose all the protection, and they still have access to all the money, they keep the trust and the protection. And so this would go on um, for their lifetime, and um, presumably they see the value of doing it, and then they start realizing, okay, I want to pass this on to my family. And so they could, the, the default is that it just stays in trust for their kids, one trust for each of their kids, but there's it, it built in there is what's called a power of appointment, meaning they can direct the assets to wherever they want to go. And so they can direct assets to anybody, literally. Um, but presumably they would create a trust for their spouse, or they would change the terms for their own kids or make charitable contributions or whatever. So they're given that, you know, that ability to incorporate it into their own estate plan. And so I don't know if I answered your question with regard to the logistics or the, uh, the specifics of creating a trust, but they're yeah. really, uh, after, after you get it funded, then it's the only party you're reporting to as trustee, or as two parties, a couple parties, rather, you've got to, you've got to file the tax return. 
All right. And so they've got a state and a federal return. And then you owe a duty to the beneficiaries. And if you're the beneficiary, it's somewhat easy to accomplish. But if you're not, if if um, we've named your the, the aunt to be the benefit to trustee of the children because the children were either too young or just uh, have some issues, then then that person has a little bit different perspective, right? They're they're holding and investing assets for somebody other than themselves. So we work a little bit more with them to make sure that they're complying with their trustee obligations. Okay. So just to, just to recap that a little bit, because I think this is this is where I see the light bulb go off when I'm having these conversations with our clients. It's, okay, one of the ways you pick up that creditor protection is by having this independent trustee that's appointed to make discretionary distributions. That That's the key, right? It, it's right. up to the trustee to decide if money comes out or not. That is correct. All right. Yeah. But to give you the control, if you don't like what that trustee is saying, you're saying you can give them the ability to replace that trustee and find someone who's going to cooperate a little bit more with them and, and basically Correct. give them what they want. Correct. Yeah. So I, you know, I didn't get into all of the provisions, but so these trusts, if they're going to be flexible, they have other uh, positions involved. So we, everybody, you know, I said, uh, three parties, you person that creates it, the trustee and the beneficiary, but we also create a position called the trustee appointer. And that's the party that can remove and appoint trustees. And again, if you've got a child that is uh, mature and got a good head on their shoulders, they're the trustee appointer as well. So they can appoint that independent party anytime and they can remove them at any time. So that's what gives them the ability to, to a broader distribution from the trust or not. And then we have another position called the trust protector, who is the party that can modify the provisions of the trust if for some reason, it's no longer um, consistent with what the intentions were or the laws have changed or facts have changed. And then when they hit a certain age where if the parents, like you were saying earlier, they would have said, hey, we would have given you the money outright anyway for for a, a competent, mature you know, beneficiary that mom and dad would feel comfortable with them just taking the money outright. Um, what's that call when they when they start to make their own decisions inside this trust? In other words, if, if you look at this trust like a bucket, it's holding assets. If they want to take money out, they have to go to that distribution trustee. But if they decide they want to buy a business or a house or something, it's it's going to stay inside of that trust. What, what's that terminology called when they're going to be able to make those decisions themselves? Yeah, they, they at that point, they become the trustee. Is it the, the investment trustee or just the trustee? Just the trustee. Correct. Excellent. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, let's say somebody who the parents die and they're 25 years old, but the trust says, hey, you can't serve as trustee until you're age 35 and you can't be trustee appointer until you're age 35. That's sort of a starting point for us. Um, so at age 35, they become trustee appointer and then they appoint themselves as trustee. So now they're running everything and they can invest in real estate personal, uh, residential, commercial, whatever, they can start businesses inside the trust. And oftentimes we tell them because they, they might say, well, I, I want to make a distribution so I can start a business. And we say, well, why don't you just start the business in the trust? We don't have to worry about distributions. And we add a layer of protection around that business. As long as it's in a um, asset protection entity, like a limited liability company or corporation, then we're not adding risk to the trust, but we're still protecting the other assets that are outside the trust. Excellent. So one other topic I wanted to explore, uh, and I wanted to save this one for last, is just the whole issue of taxation. Because I think a lot of people, when they think of estate planning and they think of trust, they automatically think of estate taxes. And you know the changes we've seen with estate taxes, I think of just really lulled a lot of people to sleep, where they go, "Hey, you have to be worth you know an excess of twenty plus million dollars before you might own an estate tax." But 
I think it's important to look at history. And last time I looked, it, I think the government has permanently repealed estate taxes. I think it's like three or four times. Uh-huh. That's correct. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about why this is not all about tax planning, and yet there's still really efficient tax planning built into a dynasty trust? Could you spend some time on that? Yep, absolutely. So uh, there's a couple different taxes at play. There's just what you were referring to, we'll call the that the death taxes, because there's the federal tax that's called the estate tax. And there's a currently a very high exclusion um, to that. And it's, you know, uh, $13 million this year, roughly, give or take. Each. Yeah, each, each, each spouse. spouse, right? Yeah, right. So and that's going to that, change, Jerry, in what, 2026? Correct. Yep. After 2025, it reverts back to the, the pre- um, I forget which act it was passed in, but anyway, it's going to go back to about seven million, six and a half, seven million. People are speculating because it's um, it's increased for inflation, so we'll see how inflation works out. But I, I would anticipate it's going to be seven million or, or a little bit less in 2026, and that's still a whole lot of money when, especially if there's two spouses. So there's 14 million dollars that you can pass estate tax free, um, which you know we all say that that's a lot of money, but if you look back and you talk to, you know, your parents and grandparents, when they bought their first house, you know, they, we have people that bought a house that would go for a half million dollars today. They bought it for $30,000. Right. And it was X, you know, 40 years ago. So, you know, it's taken a long time. It, nobody knows what the exclusion will be in the future. And, but it, it, if things play out, it's going to keep pace with, you know, there's still a lot more people that are going to be subject to a federal estate tax than they think, because it includes life insurance and retirement accounts. And that's where a lot of people's wealth is built up. That said, there are currently people that are in that range right now, or will be when the exclusion goes down. And so one of the things that trusts can do is it can take assets off the tax grid, meaning that they're, when, when mom and dad pass away, that they're going to be subject to the death tax. Um, but one, once they're in the trust, then they don't fall into anybody else's estate going forward. So they won't be subject to estate tax in the kids' estates or the grandkids' estates or great grandkids' estates. So, you know, the IRS is very aware of this. And, you know, they looked at it in 2011 and said, hey, we, we got to stop that, you know, that we want to get some of that, that ta- tax on some of that money again. And it didn't go anywhere in 2011. And I heard somebody bring it up just, just last week. I was at a conference that, yeah, they're going to they're gonna do something with that GST or not GST, but the estate tax so that at some point it's got to come back into, into estates because it's, it's there's another tax out there that nobody really thinks about and talks about, and that's called the generation skipping transfer tax. And that's when you pass assets in trust beyond your child's generation to your grandkids. And so the IRS back uh, when the Rockefellers and, and everybody was doing this, they said, well, we want to capture that money too. So it's a flat tax of 40% on assets that that skip a generation. Uh, but luckily you, you have that same exclusion, the 13 million, someday 7 million exclusion. But um, you know the, the wealthy people are very aware of that because you know that's, that's 40% uh, loss on that wealth. And so if they can keep it in a trust that's going to stay for many generations, um, the growth on those assets is just exponential. I mean, Jim, you, you're a fantastic investment advisor, but to get a 40% growth... <laughs> You know, just by keeping it in trust. Uh, There's no easy button for that one. <laughs> right. Now, I, I get it. It's over a, a generation, but still, it's it's a hard pill to swallow. 
And the last thing I'll say about the, the death taxes is Pennsylvania has an inheritance tax. Um, New York does too, but it's an estate tax. It just it is a high exclusion as well. And you know these the these types of trusts, these dynasty trusts, keeps the assets off of that tax grid too. So once it's out of the name and into the trust, it it doesn't hit an estate uh, or an inheritance tax again. The the last comment on on taxes I would say is one of the downsides of trusts is that they have higher income tax rates and they're they're very similar to individuals but they're compressed so you get to the highest income tax rate once you get around twelve thousand dollars of income so um, then it's a discussion of balancing of okay what's the downside what's the uh, disadvantage of giving assets to kids meaning if they've got a drug dependency problem or you know it's the probability is they they're going to lose it in something whether it's a divorce or uh, uh bankruptcy then paying a higher income tax at a trust is better than losing it all or half of it um but there's a way to manage the taxes in a trust so that you can minimize the taxes and that has to do with another of the trustees responsibilities so if you've got a whole bunch of income in the trust and you distribute that to the beneficiary then the trust gets the deduction for that amount. So we get down to zero taxable income. And then the beneficiary picks up that income and is taxed at their rate. So then it's a the discussion with the beneficiary, which oftentimes is the trustee trying to determine, okay, how much income can we pass out of the trust so that I, you know, as beneficiary, stay in the 25% bracket. And the trust is at the twelve or the same twenty five percent bracket or something like that. So, but that's an annual thing that, uh, and all all good trustees are doing it already. It's just a, a sort of traditional planning technique. So obviously, there's a lot to this. I mean, this is not something where you're like, yeah, I'm going to listen to this episode. I'm going to I'm going to do all this myself and write my own legal documents. Uh, not a real good idea. Um, these are things that. You know, I know Jerry. You you meet with the clients. You you go through this stuff in in detail, and then obviously you're gonna, you're going to customize this plan to to fit their their exact situation, but also keep this flexible, just because we don't know where things are headed, whether it's tax rates or what's going to happen to the beneficiaries, like all this sort of thing. So, if somebody wants to have this conversation with you one on one, what's the best way to reach out to you and connect and and have an initial conversation? Yeah, sure. The best way is to contact uh, probably my assistant because I um, often am not at my desk. Um, so my assistant, Danielle Holt, uh, she can be reached at the main um, office number of 814-459-2800. Uh, just, just contact her and and uh, set up a time to talk. What she'll do is she'll send out a questionnaire so I can get as much background on the family, the concerns, the objectives, the assets, things like that. Um, and then, then we meet and the, the first meeting is always free consultation, um, because, you know, I, I want to make sure it's the client feels that they're at the right place and it's a good fit. And then nine times out of 10, if not 99 out of a hundred, we develop a, a plan that, uh, they're comfortable with and want to move forward, or at least want to have another discussion about, um, so it, it, um, I think it's pretty effective, uh, use of their time. And there's always a little bit of cleanup work at the end. And I, I know one of the great things about uh, the work that you do is it's not just, hey, here's all your great new shiny documents that accomplish all these wonderful things. It's also, hey, let's make sure that your beneficiaries are, are updated. Let's make sure that we have to retitle assets that's done efficiently so that all the uh, all the good work you put together uh, actually comes to fruition someday. Yes, we agree. We uh, you know we want to put it in place and, and make sure that um, all the T's are crossed and that, and that includes titling of assets, beneficiary designations, things like that. And we know that things change over time and 
you know, hopefully we're in contact with the, the client on a routine basis, but sometimes that's not the case. And then when somebody passes away, you have that big, deep breath of, oh boy, I hope everything's still in good order. <laughs> well, this was great, Jerry. Uh, thank you for coming on the, on the show today. I know this is going to be a big hit with our audience because I know people are already asking about this topic. So being able to play this episode uh, you know, a couple of times, I think, is what it's going to take for a lot of folks to grab all the uh, all the details here. But uh, but genuinely, I just want to thank you for coming on the show and taking time out of your busy schedule to share with our audience. Well, Jim, I, I want to thank you for having me. I, I know that uh, you've got a following on your podcast. And one of the approaches that uh, I, I identified years ago and really have gravitated to is the approach that you've taken and is where you're putting your clients first and trying to figure out how can I put this in a person in a better, better situation and with probably a lot to do with the name of the podcast. Um, but you know, it's far easier working with people like you who have that outlook and that, um, you know, client first mentality. So I, I appreciate the time, uh, you've given me. Awesome. Thank you, Jerry. And Eric, let me turn it back over to you to wrap us up. Gentlemen, this is fantastic. Again, Jim, uh, I know that you bring on folks that are highly educated, amazing part of your network, but you both were able to break it down very, very simply and easily. So thank you for doing that. Um, I appreciate both of you. And of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast with Jim McGovern. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Jim comes out with a new podcast, we'll show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask you to share this podcast, rate it and leave a review as this actually helps others find the show. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at McGovern Wealth Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode, or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities, LLC, is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA Insurance License Number. 0F67329 AR Insurance License Number 7119103 California Insurance License Number 0F67329 Arkansas Insurance License Number 7119103 Compliance Number 2023-149391 expires January 2025